Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to call you our Father. What a privilege it is that we can come before your throne of grace with confidence. And thank you that you are willing to give us your Holy Spirit as we open your word. We pray that you will guide us in a study of your word tonight, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, yesterday evening, we went on an exciting journey in the book of Revelation, and we looked particularly at two chapters in the book of Revelation. We looked at Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 17. And what we discovered in those two chapters of Revelation is that God has a true movement, a people of God in the end of time, but that there is also a counterfeit movement or a counterfeit system and church in the end of time. And this is portrayed by these two women in the book of Revelation. There's a beautiful picture in scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and that is the, the, the picture of Christ as a bridegroom and God's people or the church as a bride. And uh, as you would guess, Jesus is not a polygamist. He only has one wife, amen? And the wife that Jesus had is the movement described in Revelation chapter 12. It's that pure movement. It's the church of God, the true people of God, the prophetic people of God that are faithful to him until the very end, that keep his commandments and that seek to do his will. But in contrast to that, we have this picture in Revelation chapter 17 that we looked at yesterday evening of a counterfeit church, a counterfeit movement, a system that appears to be um, a system representing Jesus, but has actually taken the place of Jesus and has distorted the truth of Jesus and has brought in the doctrines of man instead of the teachings of God. And so we looked at those two women yesterday or those two movements yesterday, and we're going to kind of build a little bit upon this as we continue our time in Scripture tonight. And I want to pick it up with the last verse that we left off with yesterday. And this is taken from Revelation chapter 12, the, the chapter that deals with the movement of God, the people of God. And in chapter 12, we are brought through this, it gives us a panoramic picture. We are brought through the history of the church, the people of God. And then the very end of, at the very end of that chapter, in the very last verse, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17, we read about how this war of thrones, this war between good and evil is intensifying as we get to the end of world's history. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17 says, and the dragon, which is none other than Satan, the devil himself, and the dragon was enraged with the woman, this is the movement of God, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring or with the remnants, those that are left in the end of time. And then it describes the remnant church. It describes the people of God in the last days. And it says, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So if you want to be part of the movement of God in the end of time, then you want to be characterized by what is described here in Revelation 12, 17, that you keep the commandments of God. Again, not in your own power, but because you have submitted yourself to Christ and you have invited his spirit into your life so that his obedience can be portrayed and demonstrated in your life. Amen? Okay, so that's Revelation chapter 12, that war that is between Satan, the dragon, and the woman, the people of God in the end of time. And in the end of time, God wants to shine his glory. He wants to shine his character in all of the world. And he wants to do it through human beings like you and I. And that is actually quite a humbling thought to think about because God could have done a better job to reveal his character by doing it through angels. But guess what? We are privileged to take part in this work. And he says, I want to do it through you through fallen humanity, through humanity that, is, that has been separated from their creator for, for, for so many years, but now in the end of time, he wants to show through his people that his character is a beautiful character. It's a glorious character, and it's a character that draws people to him. Well, let's look at Revelation chapter 14 again. And in Revelation chapter 14, as we look at the subject of a people of prophecy, I, wanna, I want us to go back to that, uh, angel's that first angel's message that we read about in Revelation chapter 14. Uh, we've been over this a little bit already in the course of this seminar. Revelation chapter 14 has those three messages that will go into all the world before Jesus comes. 
And I want to look at a detail that we have not looked at yet in the first angel's message. What is part of that message that is given to all the world? Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 6, the Bible says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, listen to this, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So part of this end time message that God's church, God's people in the end of time, the the woman in Revelation 12, part of the message that they are going to proclaim to the world is a call for people to accept the everlasting gospel. It's a call to the world for, for the world to fear God and give him glory. It's a call to the world that they will worship him that made heaven, the sea and and the springs of water. But it's also a message that the hour of his judgment has come. The hour of his judgment, God's judgment, has come. Now, what does that mean? And that's what we're going to study tonight. We're going to go deeper into the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation in order to discover what does it mean that the hour of his judgment has come? And how is this connected with God's people in the end of time? Are you ready for the journey? Yes? Okay, wonderful. Well, in order to understand this concept of judgment, we need to go back to the book of Daniel. And as we have discovered already numerous times here during our seminar, the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, they are closely connected. Though they were written separated hundreds of years, the same spirit that inspired Daniel the prophet inspired John on the island of Patmos. And there are so many links between these prophetic books. And in the book of Daniel, there is an amazing prophecy in the seventh chapter. We have already studied this prophecy before, but now we're going to look at an element in that prophecy that we have not yet looked at before. But in order to do that, we're going to just do a real quick review because we have been over the first part of this uh, chapter. Daniel has a dream and Daniel in his dream beholds these four beasts. And we've been over this topic uh, uh, actually more than once already in this seminar. You will remember one beast coming up after the other four beasts representing four different kingdoms. The angel in Daniel chapter 7, the angel that's communicating to the prophet Daniel, tells him that the four beasts are representing four kingdoms. The kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, represented by the lion with the wings, the bear raised up on one side with the three ribs in its mouth, the leopard with four wings and four heads, and then the ferocious dragon-like beast. And so we have these four kingdoms represented in Daniel 7. But take notice that after that, you have the little horn coming up. We've already identified this power as well as the Antichrist of Bible prophecy. This is the very power that came up after the fall of Rome. From pagan Rome, we now move into the second phase of Rome, and this is none other than papal Rome, the Church of the Dark Ages. But after that, there is a scene that comes in Daniel chapter 7 that is of interest for us tonight as we look at this subject of judgment. I want you to take notice what it says after these four beasts are represented, after the little horn has come up. Take notice of the language in Daniel chapter 7 and looking at verse 9. Daniel and the seventh chapter, and you can, you can either follow along in your Bible or you can follow along on the screen. Take notice what, of the language that is used here in Daniel and the seventh chapter and verse 9. It says, I watched till thrones were put in place and the ancient of days was seated. This is none other than God himself. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. And then we go to verse 10 and it says, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Now listen to the last phrase in verse 10. The court was seated and the books were opened. The court was seated and the books were opened. Now, what is taking place here? In Daniel chapter 7, we have the picture of the different kingdoms that would come and fall. We have the little horn power coming up. We have this time of the dark ages that lasted for centuries. And then the next scene in Daniel chapter 7 is the scene of a court. A judgment scene, but not an earthly judgment scene, but a heavenly 
judgment scene. The Ancient of Days is sitting on his throne. God himself is manifested here. And then it says that there were thousands and thousands of angels that stood around him. And it says the books were opened. Here there is a judgment that is now commencing. But this judgment is good news, my friends, because sometimes when we think about the word judgment, we become perhaps a little bit uneasy because we think about judgments and that are maybe not necessarily in our favor or that could condemn us. Uh, but this judgment, I want you to take notice what happens during this judgment. The very next verse, um, in verse 11 of the same chapter, right after verse 10, I don't think I have this one on the screen, but I'll read it for you here from the Bible, and you can listen or follow along in your Bible. It says, I watched them because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning fire. So what it says here is this is, this is a judgment upon the very power that has been persecuting the people of God. Okay, so God is now looking upon this scene that has unfolded throughout the centuries, a scene of persecution upon God's people, and now comes the time that the Ancient of Days is, is seated, and the court, uh, 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 the court has seated, and the books were opened, and the little horn, that Antichrist power, is now being judged. And in the course of this judgment, God's people are seen to be um, truthful to God, and they are actually, um, through this process of judgment, um, they are vindicated. They are vindicated. God is vindicated through this course of judgment. As a matter of fact, this, this judgment is in favor of the people of God. Amen. So this is something that, 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 we, should, that we should be uh, uh, grateful about. This is something that we should look upon with, 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 with great um, expectation and, and um, enthusiasm because now the time has come that the powers, the dark powers of this earth, the very forces of evil in the War of Thrones are being judged. Okay, so this is the judgment scene that we are introduced to in Daniel chapter 7, okay? Now we are going to go to Daniel chapter 8. And in, this, in the course of our prophecy series so far, we have actually not spent any time in Daniel chapter 8. And so I'm going to take you now to Daniel chapter 8. And it's very interesting because the prophecy in Daniel chapter 8, as most likely can be expected, builds upon the prophecy of chapter, what do you think? Seven, exactly. So we have, and, and this is again the, the principle that I've outlined several times during this seminar, repeat and enlargement, right? You have a prophecy, you have another prophecy, it repeats some of the same, but then more information is given. The same principle here in Daniel 7, moving into Daniel chapter 8. Now in Daniel chapter 7, there were how many beasts? Tell me. Four beasts, right? Four beasts in Daniel 7, representing how many kingdoms? Four kingdoms, right? Now we move into Daniel 8, and I want you to take notice of the first beast that we read about in Daniel chapter 8. And this is in verse 3. So I'm going to read here from verse 3. It says, Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing besides the river was a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. So first he sees a what? What animal? A ram. And then verse 4 says, I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. And he did according to his will, and he became great. Now, what can we expect when we are coming into chapter 8 of the book of Daniel and we read about a beast? What do you think this beast represents? I mean, it generally, what does a beast represent? A kingdom, exactly, a kingdom. Just like the beasts in Daniel 7 represented kingdoms, so the beasts in Daniel 8 represent also kingdoms, okay? And we'll find out in just a, a few moments which kingdom this is. But take notice what happens next. First, he sees a ram that is making progress. He's like conquering, a conquering ram, if you can envision anything like that. And then follows the following picture um, as we get now down to verse 5. Verse 5 of chapter 8. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west. 
And just keep that in mind. That's kind of a little um, uh, uh, detail that is, that is significant. Uh, it comes from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Verse 6, then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing besides the river and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram and he was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him. And he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. And so what Daniel sees is, is, is the, 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 uh, first he sees the, 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 the goat, and then, but then the goat, or uh, the ram rather, and then the ram um, is, is then, um, no, now I'm being mixed up here. First the ram, right? Yeah. Right, right, and then comes the goat. Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm happy you're awake tonight, okay? So, and then, and then the second beast, right, is confronting the first beast. Now let's find out what these two represent. What does the goat represent? What does the ram represent, okay? Take notice of this. We don't have to guess because the prophecy tells us. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 15, Daniel gets visit by an angel and listen to what the angel says. And it, and it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Gabriel was, was an angel. He appears several times in scripture. And so the angel is going to give understanding to the prophet Daniel regarding these two beasts and the conflict between these two beasts. He says, the ram which you saw, that was the first beast, the ram which you saw, having the two horns, they are the kings of what? Media and Persia. So no guessing here, Gabriel tells Daniel exactly what that first beast, the ram, represents. It's Medo-Persia, okay? It has the two horns, right? It's representing this united nation of Media and Persia. Then it says, and the male goat is the kingdom of what? The kingdom of Greece. Okay, so, so um, Medo-Persia is attacked by, by who? By which nation? Greece. Now, remember, from which, from which direction did the goat come? From the west, right? And from which direction did Greece come when it attacked Medo-Persia? From the west, okay? Now, look at this. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. Who was that significant king that led the Greece uh, when it attacked Medo-Persia? Who was that? Remember? Alexander the Great. It was Alexander the Great, the first king that is mentioned here. Um, then it says, as for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. Very interesting. When Alexander the Great died, guess who took over his kingdom? His four generals. Because his son was too young, and so it was divided between his four generals. So it's kind of this division of four shall arise of that nation. Very, very interesting. Prophecy is very detailed. And prophecy is giving us a picture of what was going to happen before it happened. Okay, now take notice what happens next. Daniel chapter 8, and we continue to read in verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom... When the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall destroy and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Now, now take notice of the progression here. And remember Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, in the chapter previous to chapter 8, we had four beasts, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then Antichrist or Papal Rome, right? Daniel chapter 8, we start with Medo-Persia this time. And it's interesting because Daniel chapter 8, when chapter 7 was written and chapter 8 was written, there was quite a number of years in between. And so when, when, when Daniel now gets this next vision in chapter 8, we're already closer now to the Medo-Persian power. As a matter of fact, if you go to chapter 8 and verse 1, it tells us that this, was, this vision was given in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. He's getting already closer to, and so instead of representing Babylon once more, we have now moved into the kingdom that is about to come on the scene. Medo-Persia is the first kingdom represented in chapter 8. And then Medo-Persia is followed by Greece, which is the ram with the horn. And then the ram with the horn, the horn breaks off. 
uh, Alexander the Great dies, that first king, his four generals take over the kingdom, and then the very next thing that we can, as we continue to read here in Daniel chapter 8, is a picture of a different kind of power that is now coming on the scene. A sinister power, a power that is destroying and seeking to eliminate the people of God, the holy people. Now take notice of the further description of this power. It says, through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall, he shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. Who do you think is the prince, capital P, of princes? Who could that be? That sounds like Jesus, right? He shall exalt, even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. The description of this power here is a description really of Rome. And we could actually say Rome in its two phases because we have pagan Rome and it was under pagan Rome that Jesus was crucified, remember? But then out of pagan Rome comes papal Rome, right? Just like the little horn in Daniel 7. And this power was also exalting itself against Christ by standing in the very place of Christ and changing the truth of Christ, okay? So the very same power of Daniel chapter seven, that little horn is now again being described in Daniel chapter eight, this papal power that would rule. Now take notice what it says in Daniel chapter eight and verse 13, verse 13. Now this is a little bit complex language, I admit that, but I think we can grasp the understanding when we look at the bigger picture of what is happening here. Daniel chapter eight, verse 13, the Bible says, then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? Now, bit of complex prophetic language here. Let me try to simplify the question that has actually been asked here. If I could just simplify this question, it would be something like this. The question that is being asked is, how long will these false powers rule? How long is the truth of God going to be trampled underfoot? When is God's truth going to be restored? When is God going to be vindicated? That's really the question here. How long are these powers that are, that are really misrepresenting the character of God and the way of God, how long are they going to be able to prosper? When is this going to end? That's really the question here. And uh, it says, listen again, it says, how long will the vision be concerning the daily? And this word daily actually means a continuation of something. So how long is, this, is, is there going to be a continu continuation of the transgression, the sinning of desolation, to desolate something, to desecrate something? How long is this desecration of God's truth going to continue? That's really the question that is being asked here. The sanctuary is being trampled underfoot. God's way, you know, remember we studied the sanctuary a little bit on an earlier evening. It's really a, a blueprint of God's salvation and God's plan. How long is this going to be trampled underfoot? How long is God's truth going to be counterfeited by all of these powers? That's the question. Now listen to the answer to that question. Verse 14, Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, it said, And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary, what does it say, shall be? cleansed. Okay, so the answer of how long this transgression and desolation is going to take place is, well, unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And something with the cleansing of the sanctuary has to do with the restoring of truth. But the cleansing of the sanctuary or the restoration of truth is also tied, listen very carefully, to the hour of judgment. Remember Daniel chapter 7? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Little Horn. And what was the next scene? Tell me. The judgment scene, right? The judgment scene. The courts are set. The Ancient of Days sits. The books are open. Judgment scene. Daniel chapter 8, same progression. Medo-Persia, right? The ram. I got it right this time. Then <laughs> Greece, the goat, right? And then the horn breaks off. The four come up. The division of the, of the, of the empire of, of Greece. But then it leads into this little horn power again on the scene or this, this, this power of, of, of the papacy ruling. But then how long is this all going to continue? And then it says, unto 2,300 days, the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And the cleansing of the sanctuary is connected to the hour of his judgment when the books are open and the court is seated. 
Now let's look a little bit closer at, at that connection between the judgment scene and the cleansing of the sanctuary. And in order to answer that question, we have to go back to what happened in the type. Because in the Old Testament sanctuary, we find a type of what is going to happen in the end of time regarding this final judgment, okay? Now, we've been a little bit through this sanctuary, so we're going to just do a little bit of a, a recap here, uh, and then particularly focus on that Day of Atonement um, uh, event in the sanctuary. Because on a daily basis, during the sanctuary service in the Old Testament, they would bring in animals that they would sacrifice, and remember that you would, they would take that animal and they would confess their sins as they would place their hands upon that animal and symbolically their sins would be transferred to that lamb, right? It's a symbol of our sins being transferred to Christ, which is our lamb, right? And then the lamb took their place, took the penalty that they deserve, now is placed on the lamb just like Jesus takes our penalty upon himself. The lamb was slain and burnt on the altar of uh, sacrifice outside there, but then the blood was taken into the sanctuary, and um, this happened on a daily basis. The priest would go into what was called the holy place, the first compartment of the sanctuary. This happened day by day, and so what is happening is, if I come to the sanctuary and I'm a sinner, and I come to the sanctuary and I have my little lamb with me, and I confess my sins upon that lamb, and now my, my sins are symbolically transferred to the lamb, I walk out of the sanctuary forgiven, amen? I work, I, I, my sins are no longer on me, they're on the lamb. But the lamb, the blood of the lamb, is now taken into the holy place of the sanctuary. It is sprinkled on the veil there. And so my sins, where are they symbolically? They're not with me, but they're in the sanctuary. They're in the sanctuary, okay? Now, then once a year in the Jewish system, there, what was, there was a day called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. Now, what happened on the Day of Atonement? the high priest and only the high priest would take a goat and the goat would be a symbol again of, of, of Christ. That goat would be slain and the blood of that goat would be taken, not this time into the holy place, but into the most holy place. This is where the Ark of the Covenant is. And once a year, the high priest would go into the most holy place and, this, and he would make an atonement, an atonement for the people. He would take the blood of the goat, he would put it on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. God himself would be manifested by the Shekinah glory between those two angels. And right in the Ark of the Covenant is the law of God. We have all broken the law of God. We are sinners in need of a savior. And the blood is now right between the Shekinah glory and the commandments. And so we are sanctified by the blood of Jesus, amen? And so there's a beautiful picture in this, whole, um, in this whole event of the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, the sins which were now um, being atoned for were also put on a second goat because they took two goats. One was a symbol of Jesus and the other was a symbol of the enemy, right? The origin of all sin. And it was called the scapegoat. And then the sins were placed on the scapegoat, not that the scapegoat can atone for any sin, but that because the scapegoat is ultimately responsible for all the sins. And then the scapegoat would be taken out into the wilderness to die. And as the scapegoat left the, uh, left the sanctuary and the atonement was made through the blood of the Lord's goat, symbolizing Jesus, then the sanctuary was now cleansed. The sanctuary was cleansed. We're not talking here about some, you know, vacuum cleaning and washing up the, the sanctuary. We're talking about symbolically cleansed of sin. Amen? It was cleansed of sin. Now, this happened in the type here on earth. But the book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that there's another sanctuary. Where's that sanctuary? In heaven. And who's our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary? Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ in the heavenly sanctuary in the end of time is going to make an atonement for his people just like the earthly high priest made an atonement for the people. And Jesus himself as our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary is going to enter, guess where? Into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And when Jesus enters into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary to remove sin, a process begins, and this is the process of judgment, of judgment. And why is it a process of judgment? Because now it's going to be determined who has brought their sins into the sanctuary, who has confessed their sins, who has taken hold of, of, of the lamb and has their sins forgiven and transferred into the sanctuary, and who has remained with their sins. And so there's a time of judgment. 
Very interesting. As a matter of fact, the anti-typical Day of Atonement in the past among the uh, Jewish nation was also considered a day of judgment. Because if you had not confessed your sins and placed them on the Lamb and your sins had not been transferred into the sanctuary, then the Day of Atonement was a day of judgment. It would be a day that you would be cut off from the people of God because you were retaining your sins. But all those that have brought their sins upon the Lamb, upon Jesus, and their sins have been brought symbolically into the sanctuary, for them the Day of Judgment was a beautiful day because now their sins were cleansed. Amen? And so all this is taking place on a yearly basis in the Old Testament, but it has a typology, it's a type of what is going to happen on a larger scale in the heavenly sanctuary in the end of time. All right, now let's move on because now we've seen, we've, we've discovered this link between the judgment and the cleansing of the sanctuary. Now I want you to bring you now to a, back to the prophecy in the book of Daniel. Because, as I mentioned earlier, there's this principle of repetition and enlargement. And Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, and Daniel chapter 9, they build one upon the other. Again, Daniel chapter 7, the, all the kingdoms from Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, little horn power, judgment scene. Daniel chapter 8 begins with Medo-Persia, and then we have Greece. And then we have the division of Greece, and again, this little horn power or this Rome, Roman power, and then the cleansing of the sanctuary, which is the same as the hour of judgment. But we still don't know something, and that is, when does the cleansing of the sanctuary begin? When does the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary begin? When does this scene of judgment described in Daniel chapter 7, that the courts are seated and the books have opened, when does this start? And this we learn in Daniel chapter 9, because I want you to take notice of something before we dive into Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 8, when Daniel gets all of this information, I want you to take notice what it says in the end of the chapter. I'm now reading uh, the last two verses, 26 and 27, the last two verses in chapter 8. I don't think I have them on the screen, but you can follow along in your Bible or, or listen as I read. It says the following, and the vision of the evenings and mornings, which was told, is true, and he's referring here to the prophecy of the 2,300 days. The vision of the evening, the mornings, uh, which is told is true, therefore seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future, says the angel. And when Daniel hears that, listen to his response in verse 27, last verse of chapter eight. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, and listen to the last words here in chapter eight, but I didn't understand it. Now, let me ask you something. Which part of the vision did he not understand? When the angel Gabriel says to Daniel, the goat or the ram is Medo-Persia, the goat is Greece. Do you think Daniel was like, ah, I don't understand? Now, I think he understood that, right? So which part of the vision has he had a hard time understanding? It's probably the same part that we have kind of a little bit of a hard time understanding. It's the part with the 2,300 days, the sanctuary, right? And so because, think about him. He is a Jew. He is in captivity in Babylon. The sanctuary in Jerusalem has been destroyed. And what is on his mind? On his mind is well, restoring that sanctuary, the earthly sanctuary. And so when he hears 2,300 days, and he understood the day-year principle, by the way, uh, that 2,300 years? I mean, so he, he's perplexed. He even becomes sick. He doesn't, he doesn't understand because according to him, the, it, it wouldn't take that long of a time before the prophecy of Jeremiah had ended and they could actually return and rebuild the sanctuary. So he doesn't understand this prophecy. And so as you move into chapter nine, he is praying for his people. And he, in his mind, it's like, oh God, he's confessing their, their sins and he's asking for, for revival and reformation among his people because soon they're going to return from captivity. They're gonna rebuild the city of Jerusalem. They're gonna rebuild the sanctuary. And so he knows that the reason they're in captivity is because of the sins of the people. They have broken the covenant of God. And so he is seeking for forgiveness. He is seeking for the blessing of God again upon the people. And then the same angel that visited him in chapter 8, what was his name? Gabriel, comes again in chapter 9 to give him further understanding of this amazing prophecy. Now take notice of this, Daniel chapter 9, and go down to verse 20. Well, go to verse 20. I don't know how, I, okay, I don't have this on the screen, but you're gonna, I'm going to read it for you. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 20, listen to this. Now while I was speaking... 
praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, so referring back to that vision there in Daniel chapter 8, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. Verse 22, and he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come to give you skill to understand. Now, and then he says in verse 23, at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out and I've come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter, the matter and understand the vision. Now, when he's going to give an understanding of the vision, what is he now going to give an understanding of? What was the part of the vision that Daniel didn't understand? The 2,300 days or the 2,300 years, right? Now, okay, so because we only know from Daniel chapter 8, the question was asked, how long will all this transgression continue? How long are all these powers going to trample on God's truth? How long is this counterfeit going to last? And then the answer was, unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Unto 2,300 years, day-year principle, and the sanctuary is going to be cleansed. Now, when the angel said those words in Daniel 8, he was not talking about the earthly sanctuary. He was talking about the heavenly sanctuary. But for Daniel, he's perplexed because he's thinking about the earthly sanctuary. And so when the angel comes back in Daniel chapter 9 and is going to give us the time period to start counting this amazing prophecy of the 2,300 days, he meets Daniel where he is. Because what is Daniel occupied with? Daniel is occupied with what's going to happen to my people. What's going to happen to the Jews? And so take notice of how he addresses Daniel in verse 24. Verse 24, listen to this. 70 weeks, which is also prophetic time, and 70 weeks equals 490 years, if you take the day-year principle. 70 weeks, or so 490 years, are, listen to this, determined for who? For your people. So, so the angel Gabriel is saying, okay, you have this a massive prophecy, this long prophecy of 2,300 years, but I'm telling you, Daniel, what pertains to your people, what you are thinking about, about the rebuilding of the sanctuary and the rebuilding of the city, okay, regarding your people, I'll give you a prophecy regarding that part, that's going to take 490 years. 490 years to do what? Well, to make things right. Because the reason they were in captivity is because they had transgressed God's commandments and turns their turned their back on him. Listen to verse 24, 70 weeks, 490 years are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Now, when does this prophecy begin? Well, we find out in the very next verse, verse 25. Verse 25 says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. That, my friends, is the starting point of the prophecy of the 490 years that pertains to Daniel and his people. But it's also the beginning of the prophecy that was given in chapter 8 regarding the 2,300 years. Now, Let's put this up here so we get a little bit of a better understanding. Um, I think it was the, let's see, one, two, three, I think it was the fourth evening in this seminar that we actually went over this prophecy in Daniel 9. Now, at that point, we didn't connect it with the prophecy of Daniel 8 that we're doing now. But so some of you, this, this might be a little bit of a repetition, but you will remember that in Daniel chapter 9, as you look at this prophecy, it was a prophecy of the 490 years that were regarding the people of Daniel or the Jewish nation. The command to restore Jerusalem was given in the year 457 BC. And if you start counting with the command to restore Jerusalem in 457 BC, and you count 70 prophetic weeks, so 490 years, you end up in the year 34 AD. And what happened in 34 AD? Stephen was stoned. He was the first Christian martyr. And that was like, okay, so, so God is saying, okay, you've transgressed and that's why you're in captivity, but I'm going to give you a new chance. You're going to get 490 years, and that's, that's, that's the time given for you to turn around as the people of God. Well, what was the marking point that the probation for the Jews as a nation ended? As a nation, individually they could still be saved, but as a nation, their probation ended when they stoned Stephen to death in the year 34 AD. But in, in this period of the 490 years, the Messiah would come. And the Messiah is predicted in this prophecy. It says 69 prophetic weeks will bring you to the, to the Messiah. And the word Messiah means the anointed one. 
and Jesus was anointed when he was baptized in the year 27 AD. And then the prophecy in Daniel 9 talks about what would happen in the final week of that prophecy. In the midst of the week, after three and a half years, Jesus would be crucified, the year 31 AD. Now, uh, I know this is going quick, but, but if you want to go more in detail to that prophecy, you can go back and it's on YouTube. You can watch presentation number four. It goes more in detail. But this was only a prophecy that was connected with a larger prophecy. So look at this. If 457 is the beginning date of the 2,300-year prophecy, then that would bring us, well, beyond those first 490 years, and we would have to count another 1,810 years to come to 2,300 years, that would bring us to the year 1844. Now, what is significant here? This is very, very interesting. Back to Daniel 7 for a moment. Daniel 7, you have the four kingdoms. Then you have the little horn power. You have the dark ages during the papal supremacy of the dark ages. And it was as you, we come out of the dark ages and the Protestant Reformation comes about, there was a preaching of the word of God and specifically a preaching from the prophetic books of Daniel and Revelation. And it was around this movement in the early 1800s that there was a focus on the significance of the prophecies of Scripture. And, uh, and as this is taking place, there is something taking place in heaven as well. Jesus, as our high priest, is now moving into his final stage to cleanse the heavenly sanctuary. And this happened after those 2,300 years ended in the year 1844. In other words, from the year 1844, Jesus moved as our high priest from the holy place into the most holy place. Think a little bit like this. The sanctuary is a picture of the plan of salvation. The outer court of the sanctuary, so if I walk into the sanctuary like this direction, I first meet the outer court, and you have the altar of sacrifice, that is a symbol of the crucifixion of Jesus. So first he was crucified, but then as he rose from the grave and he ascended to heaven, where did he go? Well, the book of Hebrews tells us where he went. He went to the heavenly sanctuary. And so now he starts his ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. By the way, Pentecost was the beginning because at Pentecost, Jesus was, as high priest, was, was anointed with the Spirit, and the Spirit dripped down on the disciples as they received the outpouring of God's Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So he begins his ministry in the holy place. What can we expect as time goes on? Well, we can expect the very same thing that happened in the earthly sanctuary. A time will come when Jesus will go into the last phase of his heavenly sanctuary ministry. And prophecy predicted that in the year 1844, he moved now from the holy place into the most holy place. So what does this tell us? Very practically, what does this tell us today? This tells us the following. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is in the heavenly sanctuary, and he's in his last phase of the heavenly sanctuary ministry. What happens when that phase is done? Well, good news, friends. He comes again. Amen? He will come again as King of kings and Lord of lords. Because Jesus is not going to be high priest forever. There will come a time that Jesus has made an atonement for the sins of his people. He has cleansed his people from their iniquity. And then he will take off the priestly garments and he will put on his kingly garments and he will come to take us home. Amen? And we're living in the end of time. We're living in the very time that Jesus, as our high priest, is in the heavenly sanctuary. And my friends, this is good news because the Bible tells us that he constantly without ceasing, is making intercession for us before the Heavenly Father. Amen? Just like the high priest on that day of atonement would put the blood between the Shekinah glory and the commandments, so Jesus, your high priest, your friend, your Savior, is standing before the throne of God and the omnipotent and, and omnipresent and, and all-powerful God, and he's making intercession for you. Amen? And for me, he is going, he is praying for us so that we may be empowered as a people of prophecy to live in, in, in obedience to the commandments of God. And he is right there at the throne room of God for us right now, as prophecy predicts. Well, I want to, I want to uh, show you something interesting that, that, that happened in the course of human history around this time of 1844. Because according to prophecies, the prophecies of Daniel 8 and 9, Jesus moved into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary in 1844. What was happening on earth at that time? Well, it was interesting. There was a man by the name of William Miller. And William Miller was um, a keen student of the scriptures. And uh, he was studying the book of Daniel. And he was studying the prophecies of Daniel chapter 7 and 8. 
And as he studied the prophecies of Daniel 7, 8, and 9, he said, well, you know what? Something significant is going to happen in 1840. Well, first he believed 1843, but then as he closer looked at the dates and, 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 and the Day of Atonement and, and the connection of when the command was given and, and the whole prophecy, he came to the conclusion of 1844. But he said, something significant is going to happen around this time. And this was around 1840 when he started to preach these things. And so he's just a couple of years off this great event that is portrayed there in the book of Daniel. But he had things not quite clear, though, because what he believed is that the cleansing of the sanctuary, he believed, was the second coming of Jesus. He believed that the sanctuary was a picture of this earth, and the cleansing of the sanctuary was the cleansing of God by fire when Jesus comes again. So he starts preaching that Jesus is going to come again in 1844. Quite interesting. Well, that, that was revolutionary at that time. And actually, this is also referred to as the Great Awakening. And it was not just William Miller that preached this on this continent of, of the United States of America, but there were countless people preaching this across the, around the world. It's very interesting that around the 1800s, and the beginning of the, 18, the first uh, half of the 1800s, there was a lot of focus on Bible prophecy and, and the, the prophecies of the book of Daniel and Revelation. And so as this is going on, they are all anticipating the soon coming of Jesus. They're getting ready, and they believe that he's going to return. Well, you can imagine that that resulted in quite a disappointment, right? Now, that disappointment um, of Jesus not returning is actually a prediction that we also find in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 10 describes what was going to happen when the book of Daniel would be opened and the prophecies would be studied and the prophecies would be proclaimed and the people would live in anticipation of his coming, but it didn't happen. Uh, this, this event in, in, in earth's history is actually portrayed in Revelation chapter 10. And I want to just bring you in, in, in the remaining minutes that we have here, I want to just give you a little bit of an overview of Revelation chapter 10. It's very fascinating. So take notice, Revelation chapter 10, and beginning in verse 1. And look at what the Bible says. It says, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the, fa was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had, listen to this, a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So a messenger from heaven comes down. And uh, I, I'm kind of tempted to, to go into a little bit of this symbols that are used here. But uh, shall I do that or not? Okay, real, real quick. Okay, <laughs> real, real quick. Look, look, look at the description here. Okay, he's clothed with a cloud. Jesus in the book of Revelation is connected with the cloud when he returns the second time. He comes with the cloud. So there's a message here about the second coming. The rainbow was on his head. Rainbow goes all the way back to, the, to Noah. It's the symbol of the covenant. Okay, it's the covenant of God. His feet like the pillars of fire. Where do you find the, feet of, the uh, pillars of fire? You find it in the story of Exodus when God led out the people into the wilderness. And every time the, uh, the pillar of fire would move, the people had to move. Okay? And then it says that, uh, so he has, the, and he, was, he had the face shining like the sun. Shining in the brightness. It's like the glory of God. And so the message here is a message about, I'm coming soon. I want to establish a covenant with you. And this covenant is about you revealing the glory of God. And if you stay close to me, I will lead you all the way home. So, so this is the message. It's almost like, you know, <laughs> someone knocks on your door and you open up the door and there's a policeman standing there and he doesn't say a word. But you already know maybe what kind of message is coming just by his appearance, right? Maybe you're in trouble. <laughs> I hope not. If you go to the hospital and you have a loved one that is being operated there, and then the doctor comes out and he's dressed like up like the doctor. Before he speaks a word, you know what kind of message he's going to bring. It's going to be some, something medically related. The angel appears and before he's even speaking a word, we understand that this message is about something about his coming and a covenant and the shining of the glory of God and the leading of God's people. And then it says that he has a little book that is opened in his hand. And the question is, what is this little book that is opened in his hand? Well, this little book is none other than the book of Daniel. In the Old Testament, the book of Daniel is a little book. It has 12 chapters. And this little book, I want you to, I want you to take notice of this. According to Daniel chapter 12, the last, ver, uh, the last chapter in the book of Daniel, as all the prophecies have been given in this little book, then you come to the last chapter, chapter 12 and verse 4, and listen to what the angel says to, the, to Daniel the prophet. He says, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and do what with the book? Seal the book until when? 
The end of time. Many shall run to and fro. Knowledge shall increase. The book of Daniel, and particularly the prophecies of the book of Daniel, were not yet to be understood in the time of Daniel. But the time would come when this book would be opened. The time would come when the prophecies would be understood. The time would come when we're getting closer to the, to, to the end of earth's history. And when we get to the book of Revelation, and when we get to the 10th chapter, there's this mighty angel coming down from heaven. And guess what? There's a little book in his hand, and the book is no longer shut. It's open. Amen? The book of Daniel has been opened. This is the very time uh, around the 1800s when, when we're moving from the Dark Ages through the Reformation of the 1500s and the 1600s, the 1700s. But when we get to the 1800s, the, the Reformation is now taking on a whole new gear because people are getting back into prophecy. And they're studying, they're studying these words and they're studying these prophecies. Now, which portion of Daniel was specifically sealed until the end of time? Well, Daniel 8.26 tells us. Daniel chapter 8, 26, the prophecy regarding the 2,300 days or 2,300 years. Of this prophecy, it says in Daniel 8, verse 26, and the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true, therefore seal up the vision, for it refers to what? Many days in the future. Well, when Daniel got the prophecy a couple of hundred years before Christ, this was still a long distance away. That the the, not, not talking here about the earthly sanctuary being cleansed, that was not so far away. Obviously, this is talking about the heavenly sanctuary being cleansed in the end of time. 2,300 years. That's a long way from the command to restore Jerusalem in 457 BC. But eventually that time period ended in 1844, and now the cleansing of the sanctuary has begun in the heavenly sanctuary, and Jesus Christ, our high priest, has moved into the final phase of his priestly ministry. Daniel 8:14, and he said unto me, for 2,000, 300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. That's exactly what is taking place from 1844. Now, what about that disappointment? Because, oh, there was this great revival, and oh, there was this great enthusiasm. Can you imagine living at that time? Just imagine living at that time, and you are studying the prophecies of the book of Daniel, and you have been heard that 2,300 days is going to end in 1844, and you see how it all uh, unfolds in Daniel 7, 8, and 9, and you're thinking, oh, Jesus is soon coming. Well, when he didn't come in 1844, don't you think that was a little bit of a disappointment? Oh, a massive disappointment. Do you know that even the disappointment is described in Revelation chapter 10? Now take notice of this. I get so enthusiastic about this. This is just too good to be true. Look at this. Revelation chapter 10, reading the last verses in that chapter, verse 8 to 10, it says, Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, speaking to Daniel, Go, take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So Daniel now has to go and take that little book, the book of Daniel, symbolically has to grab that from the angel. Now look at this. So I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat it and eat it. And it will make your stomach, what? Bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Now, this symbol of the word of God being like, the, like food for us is not uncommon. This is throughout scripture. And so John takes that little book out of the angel's hand. And at that very moment, the experience that John is going through is the experience that the believers went through when they were expecting Jesus to come in 1844. And so he takes the little book, he eats it. He's studying the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is like sweet as honey. Oh, the prophecies, beautiful. Ah, oh, the prophecies, they, they're, they're unfolding before our very eyes. They were studying Daniel chapter two. They were studying Daniel chapter seven. They were studying all these incredible prophecies and, and so much made sense. But, but that fine, and the 2,300 days, it made sense. But, but the only thing that they really had wrong was, was the actual event of what would happen after those 2,300 days. They thought Jesus would come, but Jesus would move into his final stage of his ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. And so they're waiting for him and it's sweet and they're waiting and it's sweet and it's wet and they're waiting and it's sweet and then bitter disappointment oh can you imagine that disappointment a bitter disappointment when jesus did not come but does that mean that the that the movement is over by no means i want you to take notice of something when jesus died on the cross how many of his disciples were like rejoicing that the plan of salvation was going just on track how many of them were like, yay, this is wonderful. The devil has been conquered. Let's go out and preach. How many of them? Zero. 
They were all cowarding in, a, in an upper room, locking the door and afraid to go out because they believed that the whole deal was over. But then Jesus comes back to them. And guess what he does? When Jesus, when Jesus resurrected from the grave and he appears to his disciples, he started, them teaching, he started teaching them the scriptures. And they started seeing, ah, that's why you had to die. Ah, that's why. That's who you are. Oh, that's the kingdom that you came to, 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 to present. And for the first time, they really started getting things. And guess what? When they were filled with the Spirit, now they were ready to go out and preach. So out of the disappointment, a new movement began. This is the same that happened in 1844. There was a people that were discouraged that Jesus didn't come as they expected him to come. But guess what? They went back to their Bibles. And they went back to their Bibles and they say, okay, the fault must be on our side. The prophecy makes sense. It leads to 1844. All the other events have happened so far, but the cleansing of the sanctuary, cleansing of the sanctuary. Ah, the light bulb went on. Ah, the cleansing of the sanctuary is not the cleansing of this earth. There's a heavenly sanctuary. Ah, Jesus is our high priest, and he's now cleansing the heavenly sanctuary before he returns to this earth. Look at the very last verse of Revelation chapter 10, the very last verse. So after the disappointment, the, the sweet, bitter experience, what does the angel say to God's movement? John is represented here by God's movement. He says the following. He said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and peoples. In other words, this, this, this thing is not over. You need to go out and you need to preach that the end of all things is at hand and that Christ, our high priest of the heavenly sanctuary, is wrapping up his work and soon is going to return to this earth as our King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you know what, my friends? God is a professional at bringing beauty out of disappointment. Can you say amen? Oh, he did it at the cross. Oh, there was lots of disappointment, but, but out of the disappointment, oh, something beautiful emerged, a new movement emerged. And he does it in our lives all the time, doesn't he? When we are going through disappointments in our life, God is a professional in bringing beauty out of those hardships and trials and disappointments that we go through. Can you say amen? Oh, God is good. And so what happened at the cross that there was a disappointment among the disciples, but out of that disappointment, a new movement began. This happened again in, in, in the history of the church in the 1800s when there was a disappointment regarding uh, the coming of Christ and, and the events uh, leading up to the coming of Christ. But when they again studied their scriptures and they saw this incredibly beautiful message that Christ is now our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary, they went out with boldness just like the disciples went out with boldness. And there's been a movement ever since. It's called the Advent Movement. It's the movement that is now proclaiming the soon coming of Jesus, proclaiming that we're living in a time of the antitypical Day of Atonement. We're living in a time that the hour of his judgment has come, according to the first angel's message. The hour of judgment, the cleansing of the sanctuary is happening right now as I'm speaking. Oh, may your sins be right there in that sanctuary so that they can be cleansed and you can be made, and that God can make an atonement for you, amen? Because this is good news, my friends. When you bring your sins to the sanctuary, this is good news. This is good news. There is nothing so powerful as truth whose time has come. And the time has come for the most significant truth of Scripture. And that is the following, my friends. Where is Jesus right now and what is he doing? If we can answer that question, huh, that's the question that we need to ask. And uh, we need to ask and answer. You know what? I, I meet Christians all the time around the globe. And uh, I love having conversations about prophetic themes, but this is a question that I love asking because we know what Jesus did 2,000 years ago when he came to this earth. He died for our sins, amen? We know what he did on that third day. He rose from the grave. We know that Jesus ascended to the Father, but the crucial question for the Christian church today is the question, where is Jesus right now and what is he doing? And I believe that the cleansing of the sanctuary theme and prophecy answers that question. Amen? Where is Jesus right now? He's in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. What is he doing? He's making atonement for you and me. Amen? The hour of his judgment has come, but we need not fear the judgment because the judgment is in favor of the saints. Amen? Well, I hope that this has been an encouraging message. 
Because I believe that in the end of time, God has a prophetic people that will proclaim this very message. And you can be among them. You can say, you know what? I want to join this movement. I want to be part of a movement that keeps the commandments of God, including the Sabbath. I want to be a part of a movement that preaches this message of the sanctuary and Christ as our high priest in the most holy place of the sanctuary and this final phase of his ministry before he comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's close with this last verse. Hebrews 7.25, one of my favorite verses in scripture. It says, therefore he, Jesus, is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Oh man, we have a great message. We have a wonderful savior. We have an awesome high priest and he's right there before the throne of God living to make intercession for you every single moment. Won't you go to him in prayer? Amen. Won't you confess your sins to him so that your sins may be blotted out so that when he comes again, he can take you home. Amen. Well, let's have a prayer in closing. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for these amazing prophecies that you have given. And I pray, Lord, that these prophecies may sink into our heart and give us motivation and encouragement and inspiration to live for you in anticipation of your soon coming. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.